Hello and welcome. I'm Enrique Serna, and this is the KCTS 9 Digital Studios Podcast. The Gang of Four. Four leaders, four communities, one friendship. Right in the middle of it all was Bob Santos. In Seattle's Chinatown International District, he is known as Uncle Bob. And among those who have worked for civil rights and social justice in the Puget Sound region, he's also known as one of the members of the Gang of Four. Bob Santos, who for many years headed up interim the International District Improvement Association, joined with Roberto Maestas of El Centro de la Raza, Bernie Whitebear of the United Indians of All Tribes Foundation, and Larry Gossett of the Central Area Motivation Project to work together and bring major change for communities of color in housing, education, and employment here in the Seattle area. How they did it and what it has meant is detailed in a book titled The Gang of Four, co-written by Bob Santos and Gary Iwamoto. And Bob joins me now to talk about the book, to talk about The Gang of Four, and about the issues of race and social justice. And welcome, Uncle Bob. Good to have you here. Thank you, Enrique. How, how did you become Uncle Bob? Where did that come oh, from? Oh, that's a big story. In <laughs> 1971, my wife and I were, um, we, have, we had six children, and they were involved in the Filipino Youth Activities Drill Team. And we brought uh, a couple of busloads of the drill team to, to California to do uh, to do uh, performances in San Francisco and Stockton and uh, Vallejo, and um, and I was sort of it, I was the uncle in charge of equipment and and um, and uh, backpacks and all that kind of stuff. So as as we finished the um, the tour, everybody all the all the all the kids and the families they drive home in a Greyhound bus, and I fly to Washington D.C. to the 1971 White House Conference on Aging, and we're sitting in the in the lounge at one of the big hotels and having a good time. And over the loudspeaker, I hear Uncle Bob on line four in the lobby, and this went on about two or three times. Uncle Bob, and it was there were kids that misplaced their backpacks and wanted to know where Uncle Bob stored them. So it it became an it, it became a national term before it became a local term. <laughs> and I think everybody that knows you, in, in the, not only here, but also, like you said, around the country, they all know you as Uncle Bob. You know, before we talk about the book, uh, talk a little bit more about you. Uh, you grew up here in Seattle. Your, your life really revolved around the Chinatown International District. Let's talk about that, where you were born and... Uh, you know, that, those growing up years. Okay, Enrique, my father, uh, Macario Santos, joins the U.S. Navy in the Philippines and on his way uh, to San Diego, uh, I think it was on a destroyer or something, he gets in uh, an argument or a fight with a junior officer, and he beats him up. <laughs> and and right before they, they dock, he jumps ship, <clears throat> and... Um, and uh, he had no skills, so my father changed his name from Macario Santos to Sammy Santos and became a professional prize fighter. And if you look up in Ring Ring magazine, he he had 120 documented uh, professional fights. <clears throat> he was pretty good. 
Socking Sammy. Socking, socking Sammy Santos, the <laughs> Manila Mahler. <clears throat> and and he, he, he fought most of his early career in, in Southern California until the, the MPs, the military police, caught up with him. And uh, Dad would never tell us how mu- much time he spent in the brig, but it must have been at, at least a year or so. And when he got out, he resumed his boxing career and ended up actually in Seattle because Seattle is a very good fight town, very good sports town, because we didn't have that many uh, sports teams at that time. You had, Not you like had, now. You had the University of Washington football program uh, and the Seattle Rainier baseball uh, team in the Pacific Coast League. So Sammy Santos was one of the local heroes, not just in the Asian community or Filipino community, but all of Seattle. He was, uh, he was Seattle's uh, pride. Uh, I met my mom. My mom uh, uh, was born in Canada. Uh, her father also uh, immigrated from the Philippines, but he ended up in Nanaimo, Canada for some reason, and we don't know. Anyway, they, they, they finally ended up in Seattle, Sammy and Virginia met and had two two kids, my brother Sam and I. And of course, that was we were segregated with the, the Japanese, Chinese, Filipinos in the international district area. So that's where I grew up. Uh, a very sad note: my my mother died uh, at a very early age. She was 23 years old. Died in 1935 of tuberculosis. That was the dreaded disease at right, the time. Right, at that time. So my dad, uh, being, he, he had just retired from boxing. He couldn't handle two kids. And dad was, became sort of a playboy after my mom died. And so uh, my brother was shipped off to a grandma, a grandmother in Tacoma. And I grew up in the central area with an aunt and uncle. They took me in. And I'd spend half the time with them in the central area, and with my dad in Chinatown, Manila Town. Uh, my aunt and uncle sent me parochial school, so here I am, an altar boy. Um, I don't know, Enrique, if you're Catholic, but... I am, actually. <laughs> growing up in the 30s and 40s, for me, every day was, it was sort of really fun growing up in Chinatown, uh, Manila Town, and then... Then segued in the, in the weekday, going to school and then serving mass on Sunday. So I, I grew up in two worlds: one where everything that was fun was a sin, <laughs> and then everything that was normal in the international district was was okay, w- was life, and uh, that's what that's how I grew up. And um, uh, the the one of the schools we attended was Marino Mission School on Seventeenth and Jefferson. Japanese kids were rounded up with their families, sent to internment camps, and so they closed the school up. The archdiocese bought it or acquired it and renamed it St. Peter Claver Center, and that became sort of the center of the civil rights movement. I was director of a program called Caritas. It was a tutoring program and social service program. And with that title, I also I was also um, manager of the facility, St. Peter Claver Center. And we used to rent out the spaces, the auditorium and the, and the, the old school, uh, the school rooms to nonprofit organizations and to civil rights groups. And uh, one of the first groups that came in to rent uh, the auditorium were... Um, the Black Panther uh, Party uh, chapter who wanted to start their breakfast program. And this so, was, a, what, probably late 60s, late 60s. early 70s? Yeah, in late, late 60s, late early 60s. 70s. 
and they were running the program, and the word came down from the archdiocese. Uh, we don't see any. We don't see any rental income coming in here with with, with all these groups coming into the St. Peter Claver Center, and um, and and I I let word back up there that these guys are really doing the Lord's work. <laughs> so 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 the word went around. If you want to have a meeting. Um, uh, contact Uncle Bob in, in the International District, I mean, in, at the Caritas, and you could find a space, or you could use the auditorium uh, if it's available for, for meetings. So um, Bernie Whitebear, he had occupied Fort Lawton, him and his Indian brothers and sisters, and they'd sneak out at night, and they'd have to have a meeting place. They would come down to St. Peter Claver Center, and um, that's the first time I met Bernie, and um, that was a just a really neat group of young Asia, uh, uh, Native, American. Native Americans and, and elders. And uh, they were uh, working together to find out what they were going to do, how they were going to acquire the land, and what would they do with it once they acquired it. So uh, that's how I met Bernie. Uh, Larry Gossett was with the Black Student Union, and we had... Um, we had uh, allowed uh, the BSU to meet at the uh, St. Peter Clever Center. I think they met almost every Thursday. And then uh, El Centro, well, the uh, United Farm Workers sent three staff members from Delano up to Seattle. Uh, Fred Ross, Jr., uh, Nancy, and Sarah Welsh. And we gave them space in St. Peter Claver Center, a little office space. So that's where I start to meet Roberto when he would come in. They would gather there and uh, would, uh, uh, would bring the troops to uh, Safeway in the, in the area, either on Rainier Avenue, International District Chinatown had a Safeway. And, uh, and they were protesting then, really, the great, the great boycott. Right. The part great of the boycott and workers. segued into the lettuce boycott. <laughs> so uh, with all these groups meeting in the, um, at St. Peter Claver Center, we really got to know each other, and we would follow each other's movements. Um, uh, Roberto, of course, they acquired... Um, the old Beacon Hill School, and started up El Centro de la Raza, social service agency. I left St. Peter Claver Center to work in the international district uh, in the, uh, at interim, um, concerned about displacement of our residents due to construction of two freeways and, uh, and the kingdom stadium. Larry was hired, recruited, and hired by CAMP, Central Air and Motivation Program to to uh, to uh, organize the community, the, mostly the black community, and uh, to develop programs for that community. And of course, uh, Bernie, they successfully acquired 20 acres of land uh, out at uh, out at uh, Fort Lawton. So, um, um, <clears throat> so I'm in the international district, and and it was our responsibility down there to. To, to preserve that neighborhood for the pioneers who built it. And we had to do that by learning the political process to find out where funds would come from so that we could build housing, so we could start up a, a, a multilingual, multicultural health program. We started up a child care center for working families, and we even built a community garden up on the hillside that's still operating, it's still there. Uh, operating today. So as we four were hired by our organizations as executive directors, um, we would meet uh, almost weekly 
uh, maybe sometimes twice a week at finance committee uh, hearings at the city council and at the county council. And we would, we would be in competition for a pot. They'd put a little pot of money out there, and we'd be in competition for those funds, for, for organizations, for ethnic groups. And finally we got together and we said, you know, this is a bunch of bull****. Man, you know, we, we, we have to get together. We, 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 we have to work as a coalition, force the public sector to come up with a bigger pot because we had services of, we, we needed to provide services for unmet needs. So that's how we sort of got, we started to get together. We started to, to uh, invite each other at our fundraising organizations or at demonstrations. In the international district, we were opposed to the stadium, the kingdom, and um, we would have demonstrations against the construction of the kingdom. Bernie, Maestas, and Larry would bring their troops, and then we would do the same with the Indians at Fort Lawton. Uh, 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 Roberto, Larry, and and I would bring our troops to support Bernie, and and and, and we were doing this kind of thing all during the the. Uh, Late '60s and into the '70s, and there was one person that we we followed um, uh, religiously, a guy named Tyree Scott. Right. He was a civil rights leader, African American, African American construction. construction. He was closing yeah. down construction sites, so we all joined Tyree in in uh, trying to get more uh, African Americans and other minorities into the construction industry. And the unions were also barring uh, people of color. So um, so Tyree brought us together, and, you know, we spent a lot of time on the street, a lot of demonstrations, a lot of rallies. We spoke at all these these functions, and we'd end up in jail together. And that's where you really bond, you know. You start talking smack at each other and, you know, who, who could bring out the most people at a demonstration. And, and uh, we formed a very close relationship a very close friendship you guys that was the thing um you worked together obviously from you were representing for the asian community pacific islander uh roberto maestas obviously the latino community uh larry gossett the african-american community and bernie white bear the native american community four different groups now in a lot of other cities and places the idea of those organizations kind of coming together to work together was not something that would really happen so really you guys set this template that nobody had ever done before well you know it i think it started out like one and one and one like um larry and roberto met at a demonstration at franklin high school and um, Roberto was a teacher at Franklin High School, and he wore, you know, he would daily he'd go to uh, to class with a with a shirt and tie and a tweed coat, and he he meets uh, Larry Gossett, who brings his uh, his comrades from the Black Student Union to organize the Black students at Franklin High School. Uh, uh, the principal had sent two uh, young ladies home from school because. They were not, they didn't appear to be, um, uh, they were wearing naturals. Meaning they had afros. The afros, the afros, right. that's right. And, and, uh, yeah. and that, was, that was sort of out of line at that time in, 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 in the early 70s. 
and uh, Roberto was a teacher there, and he joined the uh, movement of the Black Student Union because he liked that action. He, he started to get involved, involved in the civil rights movement. Bernie and I uh, had a lot in common because um, his father was from the Philippines, Filipino, and uh, and of course, and my mother, uh, her grandmother was Native American from Canada, uh, from Alaska. So we had this blood brotherhood <laughs> together, and he wanted he'd call up and say, "Hey, Uncle Bob, I have to know more about my uh, Filipino heritage, and uh, can I hang out with you?" And so he would, and we'd we'd hang out at the Bush Garden, at the Four Seas, at the at the Gimling, at the at the Silver Dragon, all in the idea, all the all in the idea, and there are the lounges. And he says, "God, you guys party like the Indians." I mean, we 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 we, we like this relationship, so. Bernie and I became pretty close, and then with the other two, um, we started to meet pretty often socially. And at one point in the early, in the mid 70s, um, the Asian Community uh, Theater Group, NWA, it was a, actually a theater production uh, nonprofit. And uh, they'd put on, they'd produce a, a, a a show every uh, holiday season called a community show off. Like and a talent show. It's a talent show yeah. with the Asians and other folks that would come in. So I, I, I got the guys together and said, let's, why don't we do something? I mean, you know, we, we, we're in very, very serious conditions and issues that we fight every single day. But let's show the community how four of us can work together and, and let's do something entertaining. Would would be different, from, and and um, so we got a guy named Gary Iwamoto, my co-writer for the book, to write scripts, and uh, we we would do these these skits. Uh, we did a number, uh, Gladys Knight and the Four Pips. Annie Galarosa was Gladys Knight. We were the Four Pips, and we rehearsed for two months. Um, uh, uh, the song the to, dance the, moves to the great all, mo all the yeah. dance moves Heard it through the great it, was, it was it was just a lot of fun so um uh social even socially and, and entertainment wise we we had a lot of fun together talk about seattle growing up here i think you know we still have this image of being uh well we're a progressive city image of where uh I would say that some people think that, that uh, racism is not a big problem here, uh, although obviously so many things have happened regarding the police department and other issues that you know bring a lot of different uh, uh, views about all of that now. But as you were growing up in, in Seattle, very white town, what did, you, what did you encounter? What did you have to face? Well... As I as I mentioned, um, the four major or the three major Asian ethnic groups at that time, Chinese immigrants, immigrants from Japan and the Philippines, were segregated in what we call the International District. And so, when you look at the International District, there is a historic Chinatown, there was a historic Japan town called Nihomachi, and in the middle of Chinatown was Manila Town on Maynard Avenue on Sixth Avenue, and so we were forced. We were forced to, to 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 live together, with three different cultures, three different languages, and three really different social uh, networks. And um, although we're living together in this neighborhood, there was not too much 
um, interaction with our parents, our grandparents or our parents. But as kids, we, we're, we're attending school. We're growing up in the same neighborhood and we're going to the same schools. And so our interaction with each other, with the Chinese kids, the Filipino kids, Japanese kids, the Jewish kids in our neighborhood and the African-American black kids in our neighborhood, um, in in the in the 1920s and 30s, um, the jazz scene in Seattle was the international district. We had 23 nightclubs wow. in the Chinatown international district area, and uh, there's a book out um, written and published by a guy named uh, DeBarros, Paul yeah, DeBarros. He writes about the 23 nightclubs, and as I'm growing up in the late 30s and into the 40s, I'm surrounded by music. There's music everywhere. All the Chinese restaurants, um, uh, they would they would serve dinner, and then after dinner, about nine o'clock after the dinner hour, uh, after the patron dinner patrons left, they would open up the mezzanine floors as a nightclub for the musicians, and and people would bring it would be a bottle club, you know, um, people would come in and and they'd pay a cover charge, and then the bootlegger would run out the back door and he'd bring back you know a bottle of booze. I, I have a name of that bootlegger, but I won't give it to you. <laughs> but um, uh, th- that was growing up. There was music everywhere. Ray Charles comes, uh, jumps on a Greyhound bus in the South, and he ends up in Seattle. And his first professional gig was at um, at, at the corner of Maynard and Jackson, in the old uh, Tota building. And um, they had uh, the the Black Elks Club had a nightclub on that second floor. So that's where he started. Ernestine Anderson, Quincy Jones, and uh, uh, Oscar Holden, David Holden, um, they all played in the international Chinatown area. So was there a separation where there was the white community and then the southern community? Yes. Well, there are covenants in almost every neighborhood in Seattle um, where um, where uh, owners of property, most were white owners of property, were prohibited in selling their properties to people of color or even to Jewish people at that time. Very strict covenants. And um, in, in the mid-60s, uh, we uh, got involved in the open housing ordinance. And it was um, first proposed by a guy named Wing Luke, the first Chinese, Chinese-American uh, city council member. And um, poor guy uh, died in a plane Full crash, crash. In, the, in the mid-60s after uh, less than a term in office. But open housing opened up the city so that we could move out of the international district. The African-Americans could move out of the central area into other parts of the city. So that was my first introduction into the civil rights movement. I, I joined marches for open housing. And, and at that time, I was a member of the Catholic Interracial Council. And uh, the archbishop at that time, uh, uh, Archbishop Thomas Connolly, was very involved and very favorable of, of the civil rights movement. I want to step back here. Um, you mentioned that after your mother died that you went to live with an aunt and uncle. As I understand it, your uncle, Uncle Joe, mm-hmm. he had a big impression on you when it came to politics yes. and community activism. Uncle Joe Adriatico, uh, he, he, um, he came from a very prominent family in the Philippines. <clears throat> His father, Macario Adriatico, 
was a uh, was um, was a political uh, opponent of the first president of the Philippines, a guy named Manuel Quezon. Quezon. And they were political enemies, and then they joined forces against the Spaniard, Spaniards when they wanted when they were fighting for independence. So Joe, my uncle Joe, grew up with this political uh, military. Uh, Field uh, 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 of rebels, and um, and all the meetings were held at his father's house, and um, he was primed to be, you know, the the eldest son, take over from the father. But Uncle Joe wanted adventure. He he didn't he didn't want to go into politics in the Philippines. He wanted adventure, so he he skipped out of the Philippines, and he became a merchant seaman. And he would go, you know, and as a merchant seaman, of course, you know, he would go from port to port to port. And he'd learn about the political activities in all these ports. And um, uh, uh, one of the, uh, some of the ports that he, he was very impressed with the people, the rebels of, of, of the times, were in Central America, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras, and those in those cent uh, Central Area, Central American uh, uh, countries that were being controlled by U.S. Um, conglomerates, you know, the United Fruit Company, they were they were they were buying up land all over that the uh, Central area uh, countries uh, to, uh, to to to, um, to plant and uh, harvest the bananas and coconuts and and. Um, uh, all the you know, major fruit, and um, and uh, the so Uncle uh, Joe was he a bit of a rebel. He was he was a rebel himself, and he 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 gravita gravitated to those rebellious kinds of people in these countries, and they would they would sit in the bars, you know, uh, on the seashore, and uh, they talked to Uncle Joe about you know uh, about revolution, and that was in. Uncle Joe's mind. So, growing up in the civil rights movement, Uncle Joe just really—he was really in that. You know, he—he he would rail against a guy named this. Who's this actor called Ronald Reagan, president? What does he know about the world? You know, and Uncle Joe would would go on on about that. But he was uh, very inspirational in my um, uh, looking at the world, not only locally at what we're doing uh, locally, but at the world in general and uh, how we, the United States, were treating other uh, uh, people of color uh, in their countries. And um, uh, You talked about how, you know, the, there were the covenants here, and uh, when Luke had helped to bring that down, I take it that some of your work had done that as well. Same thing with uh, Roberto Maestas and, and also Bernie White Bear and, and, and Larry Gossett as well. But... Uh, was there one thing that the four of you could look at as uh, just a groundbreaking success? One of, one of the things I, I look at is um, the composition of the city of city government and state government at that time, where the old, you know, I was I was leaping through the uh, the book on the uh, coffee table outside in the here, lobby here in the lobby here yeah. and showed the members of the city council in 1962 during the World Fair. And they're all white, and they're, and they're all male, all white. And then there was a very, uh, uh, quite a transition uh, 
during the civil rights era where most of the city council members became more progressive. John Miller and uh, Bruce, uh, Chapman. Bruce Chapman and uh, Paul Crabble, they started, Dolores Sabanga. And so when the new wave of activism spawned uh, interest from these folks to run for city councils, to run for local government, things started to change in Seattle. And I, I sort of point to that era. Um, Tyree Scott, <clears throat> Reverend McKinney, and, and other members of the civil rights movement at that time, uh, Phil Hayasaka, Father McIntyre, they started uh, with the Seattle Human Rights Commission to broaden uh, the outlook of, 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 of city government on what the communities out there were, re what they needed out there to, to to uh, to to catch up with the with the normal, the the, the process, um, and um, um, marches were da almost daily. Yeah, we're t talking. We're going into the seventies now. We're talking about the, the war, the uh, Vietnam Vietnam War, war. Yep. and uh, with those protests uh, uh, of the anti-war activists, and together with the, with the uh, civil rights activists, um, there was activity going on throughout the whole city, and city council members and even the mayor had to listen and 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 be supportive of some of the movements that were happening. There was one big mistake that Mayor Allman, uh, Wes Allman, uh, made. Um, for us, it was great. For him, it wasn't so great. He proclaimed um, one day in September, it was the early 60s, Cesar Chavez Day. And, and you know, we said, oh, right on. But then he got slammed by the business community, by the by the uh, by the farms, you know, the the people out the agriculture community, and uh, he said, "Oh, gee, what did I do?" And so he had to think of rethink about how he was going to go out and support this civil rights movement. He had to he he thought maybe he he would have to do it more carefully, you know, get more uh, uh, get get more information about who, what who, you know what this movement was all about. But um, uh, that was very heavy times, very exciting times. But then a lot of lot of a lot of laws were changed because of our action and our activities on the streets. And really in housing, and then allowing people housing. to uh, well in, in employment, yep. no doubt about in it, employment. in city government yeah. as well. But you know there were also some really some failures in, in the sense that what oh, yeah. happened statewide as yeah. well. And then in, in the international district, we had a, we had a, a group of young Filipino Americans that were involved in the the um, local 37 um, cannery worker union, <coughs> and the cannery worker union, <coughs> excuse me, was actually run by the old guard of the Filipino community, and uh, you know there, there was there was some corruption going on and favoritism in who could be dispatched to the canneries in Alaska and uh, and 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 in in every cannery in, in Alaska and there were 20 30 canneries up there and all these Filipino workers uh, there were be dispatched gamblers who would run the gambling at the canneries you know after work you know and there were all the guys hung around in the in the uh, in the common area or in in, in the in the um, commissary and uh, they set up gambling games and so um, 
there's a lot of corruption going on in, in these young guys who came from the civil rights movement. Selma Domingo and Amacio Domingo, Gene Baroness and, and uh, John Foz and uh, Elaine Coe and uh, Sherry Wu and uh, uh, Cindy Domingo. Uh, they, they wanted to reform the union so that, would, so that people would have equal opportunity to 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 uh, to uh, to to uh, go up to Alaska and and work the canneries. That was actually a very tense time. We're talking like what late seventies. We're talking about you know, all so through the seventies. Right, right. And Jean uh, Jean Viernes and Sammy Domingo were murdered in uh, yeah. union offices uh, here in Seattle. Well, the, well, the well, connection well, to the Marcos administration. It, and stuff yeah, like that. that all tied in together with with the union. Um, the uh, Selmy Domingo and Jean Varenes, um were were blackballed. They were banned from uh, being hired in the uh, in the in the canneries in Alaska. But they they decided that they would go to Alaska and, um, and 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 do investigative work about the conditions uh, the conditions of minority workers in 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 Alaska, and they. They went up as students doing research, and uh, they finally they eventually got caught and sent back. But um, the research they did led to the uh, establishment of the Alaska Cannery Workers Association. The president of the of the union at the time, Tony Baruso, was friends of Ferdinand Marcos, the president of the Philippines. And so, when it came time for the reform movement to occur in Seattle. It was very victorious for the young um, union, the uh, uh, new union uh, leadership, the activists. And, um, and uh, Bruce was very concerned that his gamblers were not, were, were not able to get dispatched to the canneries because they didn't pass the, the, the uh, rigid um, uh, uh, forms uh, that um, th- that were changed with the new with the new uh, leadership, and so uh, um, uh, Bruso uh, g- got together with Marcos, the president of the Philippines, who came up with some funds to hire um, uh, gang members, Filipino gang members, to shoot and assassinate these two guys. So you had the union reform, also the anti-Marcos uh, movement together. Uh, which uh, caused the um, assassination of our two uh, young activists. And Baruso eventually was was convicted. He was convicted of murder on those charges, yeah, as well as the other two. Uh, yeah, the, the shooters, and the um, and in the U.S. civil court, uh, Fernand Marcos and his wife Imelda were convicted uh, of complicity in those murders. Right. The only the history of the United States that a foreign head of state was ever convicted the of a crime. Yeah. That's right, that's right. Let's step back a little bit here, um, back to you and, and uh, your, uh, your mates. Um, Bernie White Bear passed away from colon cancer, um, and then Roberto Maestas had also passed away. Uh, I believe it was with lung cancer, but uh, the two of that remain are you and Larry Gossett, Larry Gossett now is a King County Council member. Um, actually, both you and, and Larry 
kind of went on to work within the system and that you went to work for uh, housing urban development and then obviously uh, Larry went on to become a council member. Um, but yet you eventually came back to interim too yeah. in the community. Yes. Why'd you go back? I ran for office three times. <clears throat> People don't remember that, but um, uh, the first time was in 1973. I ran... Um, in, in 1972, I let out word that I was interested in running for a state position uh, against a guy named John O'Brien. Then in a, the Democratic Party goes apeshit. No, you can't <laughs> run against, you know, John O'Brien. He's he's a, he's a lieutenant governor at the time. Wasn't no, John O'Brien was a state legislator, okay. the longest-serving legislator in the history of of Washington, I think it was. But anyway, they said, uh, some other time, Santo, some other time. So the next year, um, an opportunity came up when our senator, uh, Bob Ritter, resigned while in office, and there was an open seat. So I get called by Evans, Governor Evans. Would you like to, uh, would you like to run for that position? And I said, oh, that'd be interesting. And, and, and uh, he got in, me in touch with some of the folks from the Republican Party who recruited me to run for that position. And I didn't give a damn about Republicans or Democrats. Neither of them were really involved in our civil rights movement. And so I, I ran for office for that, for that one office. And as a Republican? As a Republican. And uh, my, um, they assigned me this guy to, uh, as my... Uh, uh, coordinator of the, of the campaign for the first several months, and he got more publicity than I did. His name was Ted Bundy. So I said, oh, sh there, there, there goes my political career. <laughs> Enrique, this is the same time as, as Nixon's getting in trouble with Watergate, right? It's not a good year, right, for, for Santos to run as a Republican. So I said, I'm really not a Republican, honest, and and, and so I, uh, I I lost that race. That's a good story. Yeah. I did that one. I didn't know. Yeah, that one I didn't uh, yeah. know. That Ted Bunny and my kids would say, "Dad, that guy would come to our house every day." I mean, I mean, he was killing all these people, and I said, "Well, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. You're still all here, so you're okay." You know. Oh wow. Anyway, uh, let's go, let's go back here as we we get close to wrapping things up. Um, Writing this book, uh, I know it had been kind of in the talking stages for a while, um, and it took a while for it to, to happen, but what did it mean to you to be able to, to write this book? Because this, this is important history for this area. Right? Well, and you, and you, you mentioned it uh, early on, uh, introducing the, the segment um, where uh, Asian-American, uh, Latino, uh, African American, uh, Native American, uh, Latino American um, leaders from these four ethnic groups came together uh, to form this coalition, and we hear that there's never been such a coalition in any community around around the country, and so it was very unique that this this happened. And, and it just so happened we were. One of us was an Asian, one of us was a Latino, one of us black. And it, we didn't plan it that way, but it just happened that way. And we, be, we, we became um, the gang of four, uh, or uh, the Four Amigos. Uh, another group gave us the name of the Fantastic Four. And um, we really, not only 
out there, you know, uh, with the rallies and the demonstrations, the jail time. But we really got to like each other, like brothers. And we we, we met often socially. And um, it, it just so happens that there are four of us. And we were smart in that as executive directors, we hired our deputies. And all four of us hired women. So as we're out there having fun and getting busted and rallies and shouting and yelling and in jail, the ladies, the women in our organizations were building multi-million dollar corporations, nonprofit corporations. Elaine Coates, uh, Sue Taoka at Interim, Estella Ortega at uh, El Centro. She, she's now uh, building a, uh, a $42 million development at the old horrible uh, housing, micro uh, businesses. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, Roberto's it, wife. Inter- they were actually married. Then, that's yeah. right. And Interim did the same thing. We're into housing development. We own the largest parking lot in downtown Seattle. Um, uh, Larry is a county council member, and uh, you know Bernie acquired the twenty acres out there. But he had uh, Michelle Sonadot as his deputy. And uh, Larry had um, Cindy Domingo, Domingo right. as his deputy at camp and here at the, at the county council. So, you know, we're not a bunch of dumb guys out there. We're having a lot of fun. But the women, those, those women of color, really were, were really instrumental in building our communities up. You know, uh, a lot of people don't, might not know, but uh, you're, you're a pretty good singer, karaoke guy. So usually was it a Tuesday night at Bush Garden? There? Tuesday night. No, Enrique, growing up, say, in the 40s, uh, me and my buddies from International District would do, go down to the movies. And then you had the Gene Kelly and you had uh, Fred Astaire and all these. And we'd, we'd sing and dance all the way home, right? Those movies things. And so... And, 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 and then you grow up, and we grow up in this jazz center of the world where there's music everywhere. So we're singing and dancing all the time. And, you know, there's, there's, a, you know, there's, a, there's a point of time when, hey, you, you outgrow that. And then all of a sudden we discover disco. <laughs> so here I become the disco king at Gooey's. This is the disco club at the Sheraton down, down in, in downtown Seattle all during the 80s. Can you imagine that? And then um, karaoke starts up. And so we say, we can segue into that. And we don't have to have an orchestra or a band or a trio to sing. We just go to the bar, grab a mic, mic and there, there it is on the screen, karaoke, the, all the music. So we just kept that up. Bernie would come down. He would do Elvis. Roberto would come down. He would sing Guantaramera <laughs> that, was, that was written by us, Jose Marti, the right. revolutionary. And then Larry, Larry would sit at the table, and he'd sort of sing at the table, and we said, Larry, don't go up on stage, because you're doing okay right here. <laughs> hey, of course, you're, you're pretty good at doing, what is it, New York, New York? And and doing all the Frank yeah, Sinatra. Yeah, all the Frank Sinatra ones. I do Gladys Knight and um, all right. Kenny Rogers. You have been, with the book, actually, traveling around the country, and I think a lot of people, like we mentioned before, the fact that four distinct groups came together. Yeah. And in fact, I, I moderated a thing with you guys, and, and I was amazed how that was such a surprising thing among all of these people from other parts of the country. Yeah. And, and they got up there and, and thanked you for all of this stuff. But as you do this now, 
are you still finding that that people still yeah there's there's a you know um as you say you moderated the uh, the launch the book launch at uh mohai right museum of history and industry and uh, and who'd have thunk you'd been able to do it there too <laughs> yeah but but even in the old mohai uh uh museum they always had a gang of four exhibit and uh, we were always impressed with that you know you know bernie and in 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 Roberto were still alive. We said, you know, they 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 were they have us up there prominent as part of Washington State history, and so when it came time to do a to, to do a launch, we we said, God, I wonder if Leonard would allow us to have the launch here, and he just loved it, and that was just 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 a Leonard very heads, uh, touching, Mohai. very yeah. touching launch that we had, and so I'm, uh, we found out that Amazon sold out, they sold out our books. You really? know, we said. Well, someone's purchasing this book from somewhere, and um, so and we we checking with uh, Elliot Bay. They were doing sales, were doing well. Uh, Kino Kunia at Wajimaya were doing well. All the bookstores were doing well. So we decided to um, see how we could, uh, if we if we could be, um, if, if we could promote the book out in San Francisco, the Bay Area, and I did I did that trip. We did pretty well in San Francisco and in Berkeley. I just got a back from um, Washington, D.C. We did a reading at Busboys and Poets, the famous bookstore in Washington, wow. D.C. I did two lectures at the University of Maryland, and then we did a reading in New York at the Hippodrome. Wow. And, um, and uh, we're planning one now in Los Angeles. Now, I don't know how many books we sold on these trips, but they were their fun trips. We were we able to do our reading. We had a, just, a, just a little bit of media attention, not as much as we would have liked, but that that might catch on a little bit later. Bob Santos. Bob Santos, the co-author, along with uh, Gary Iwamoto, of The Gang of Four, Four Leaders, Four Communities, One Friendship. For more about Bob and also the rest of The Gang of Four, obviously the book as well, Go to kcts9.org. Bob Santos, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Enrique. Oh, yeah, you bet it. I'm Enrique Cerna, and we'll talk more next time. <laughs>